This is the Scuba Podcast, where we talk holy shit about what it means to follow Jesus in the sacred chaos of the 21st century. My name is Benjo. I'm a 20-something anarcho-whatever-pastor committed to creating safe spaces for figuring out faith, doing the work, and getting up to holy mischief wherever and whenever we need to. I don't have anything else to say, but for the next chunk of time, I'm just a talking head on the podcast. Thanks for listening for some reason. Good luck. Let's get into it. White Jesus to prop the empire yeah. up. Bought the binary, you rendered under Caesar. All cause your cathedrals needed more cedar. You sold another neighbor, was seated at the table. All for the major goal to hold the scrolls in your favor. Share gospel with the slaves with precision of arrows with a six. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. Um I have been off the scuba cast for a little bit now and uh yeah, I am back on the proverbial horse. This is a little chaotic today. <laughs> I have, uh, this is a wheatgrass shot with um, adaptogenic mushrooms in it. And um, I'm going to drink it. It's a, Yeah, I'm going to drink it right now and then record this podcast. Oh, you know, it doesn't taste bad. It doesn't taste bad. I can put this in coffee, I feel like. Well, I thought that would be more interesting content of me reacting so disgustingly to drinking a wheatgrass shot, but I kind of like that. So, But uh, next to my wheatgrass, I have an espresso martini, and yes, it is 9 o'clock in the morning, and yes, I'm wearing a watch, and I may or may not be wearing a shirt right now. Uh, the past... <laughs> past few uh, weeks where I wasn't uploading um, Scuba Cast, you can call it Chaos Town Dark Thirty. That's morbid. Don't call it that. Um, yeah, no, call it Chaos Town Dark Thirty. Call it that. Whatever. Um, happy birthday, Toby! This podcast is dedicated to you on this your twenty third birthday. He is a friend of mine, and uh, I'm going to sing for him now. Happy birth. No, I'm not. Okay. Uh, I'm just going to get going with this thing. I had a whole deal where I thought I was recording one thing. Like, I thought I was going to record episode seven, but I had already recorded episode seven. I just didn't upload it. Um, and I thought I didn't record episode eight, so I started to record episode eight. But then I remember recording episode eight. All this to say is that this is episode nine and you're going to get like a triple threat at some point this week when this drops, but you'll only know that you'll get a triple threat when you, well, I guess if you see this one and listen to this one first, then you'll know it's a triple threat. Or if you have like post notifications or some shit, then you can see it all drop at once. Who gives a shit, right? Um, but this is the episode that I have entitled, Do You Take Conflict Sugarcane With Your Tea Party Populism, You MF Theocrat? Wow, I forgot that I named it that. <laughs> uh, oh, this is going to be a chaotic episode. Um, if I remember correctly, there's a trigger warning about um, 
I should give a trigger warning about uh, an event in Charlottesville, North Carolina. But uh, before we get into any of that, Chet Hanks, huh? White boy summer. That's all I had to say. Chet Hanks, huh? White boy summer. That's a really good content. Fuck it. We'll just go. Okay, the conservative position, I feel like that's so unceremonious. And now the episode will begin. I'm going to drink this martini. Holy shit. It is good. It is good in the hood. Um, We're going to be talking about Tea Party, populism, um, religious moralism, mostly Tea Party. Uh, We're going to be talking about the conservative position in three, dark 30. The conservative position stems from a genuine conviction that a world that is free and emancipated and liberated and and as it should be is going to be ugly and brutish and base and dull because it will lack the excellence of a world where the better man commands the worse. This is a quote from political scientist Corey Robin, uh, and it captures an essential element of the conservative position. Uh, A desire, quote, a desire for a racial and gendered hierarchy. The greatest myth entrenched in the minds of liberals and conservatives alike is that we all share a basic vision of the common good, that we merely disagree on the technical details of how to reach that good. So that myth goes. We need only come together, come to the table to find agreement, maintain civility while refusing to call anything wicked. We're supposed to see cruelty and ignore it, preferring only to see misguided benevolence. End quote. Hanlon's razor, the idea that you never should attribute uh, to malice what is adequately explained by stupidity. You know, that's fucking true enough. So we figure all problems would just disappear with enough consciousness raising, which is great. Raise consciousness. But the capitalist machine depends on this myth. And so for the last eight episodes, we've been looking at white evangelicalism's past in these final two episodes. We're going to be looking at the future, which is so prime because, Toby, uh, many happy returns to you. But uh, I'm so sorry to say that I don't think that uh, the next two episodes are going to outline a happy future. Uh, My claim from the beginning is that it... White evangelicalism is not going to moderate. It is either going to radicalize more of the population or it will die off or both, but it is not going to moderate those two futures. So let's consider this shit it has against society, you know? It has a desire that's theocratic, but also fascist. Uh, So a case study first. A myth was born one day after the Obama administration announced its homeowners affordability and stability plan in February of nine, of 2009. The plan would invest $75 billion to assist 7 uh, to 9 million Americans. Did I say 75 billion or 79? I just... The plan would invest $75 billion to assist 7 to nine, that's the range of Americans, hopefully slowing the foreclosure crisis that was at the heart of the Great Recession. Uh, reporter Rick Santelli was fielding questions from hosts at CNBC. He was saying, quote, you know, the government is promoting bad behavior. And uh, he began by suggesting the administration could conduct an online poll to gauge whether Americans desire to subsidize what he called losers mortgages. 
He invokes old tropes of personal responsibility and carelessness to suggest property should be repossessed and given to, as he put it, people that might have a chance to actually prosper down the road because we should, as he put it, reward people that could carry the water instead of drink it. The traders behind him during this exchange are cheering in agreement, you know, fucking cucks. And uh, Santelli soaked in the attention with arms raised. He directed his voice to the floor shouting, how many of you people want to pay for your neighbor's mortgage? I don't actually know if this is, this is not how he sounds, but he said, <laughs> he said, how, how many of you people want to pay for your neighbor's mortgage that has an extra bathroom and can't pay their bills? Raise her hand, and the audience boos. And then he adds, President Obama, are you listening? And he was red-baiting the entire thing with an allusion to communism and Cuba. He even at one point suggested that the crowd, which was actually a collection of bankers and traders who were way too rich to be attending a rally like this. He actually insinuated that the bankers and traders represented a pretty good statistical cross-section of America. And he fired off criticisms of struggling homeowners who he characterized as losers. And the administration's response to um, these faulty mortgages. And then he finally said, we're thinking of having a Chicago Tea Party in July. All you capitalists that want to show up to Lake Michigan, I'm going to start organizing. And by the end of the day, the web domain ChicagoTeaParty.com, which had laid dormant since the initial registration, had been updated with a Santelli rant. Uh, you can w look this up on YouTube. Uh, this particular domain had been registered months back, nearly one day prior to the election of Barack Obama. Likewise, the Koch brothers had first registered the domain USTeaParty.com back in 2002. Soon, uh, across the United States, tax day tea parties popped up with funding and organizational support from the conservative donor class uh, and exposure from Fox News. So it, it was many things, you know, that was contributing to this particular moment of the myth. It was retribution for the election of the first black president, and there was backlash for that. We have to face it. It was blowback for the financial collapse, which was... Uh, perpetrated by the bankers and traders who were fucking people over. It was retribution for, it was a consequence of unlimited funding after the Supreme Court's uh, Citizens United decision. But it was also a combination of years of planned activism. It didn't just happen and, you know, Cambrian explosion. I don't know if that's how you use that term. Anyway, it didn't just happen uh, where all the pieces were there and then it came together. Uh, it was put together. Years of planned activism, the resonance of racial sentiment within, within the talks of anti-tax dogma and an upsurge of libertarian power for a moment that would soon be displaced by not libertarian power, but white nationalist power. Uh, the plutocrats had turned the slashing of top marginal tax rates into a moral crusade for serfs who felt they might be robbed by losers, the poorer poor. And if and when they chose to rise as millionaire entrepreneurial winners, the, the serfs could uh, be above the underclass. So there was the white evangelicalism and all of that libertarian noise, which seemed like a return of the religious right caste, but it had nothing to do with God at this point. And that's what makes the Tea Party such an interesting thing to study on theocratic and hierarchical desire. Researchers David Putnam and Robert Campbell came out with a widely influential book called American Grace, 
it was a few years ago, and it was one of the first in-depth case studies of the rise of not just American religion, but this category of the nuns, which, you know, the gospel coalition would take the word nuns and run with it and provide their own not at all good takes on what the nuns are. But this category of the nuns, which is uh, those with no overt religious affiliation. What drew my attention, though, was not the nuns, but uh, the agenda that they provided afterward, providing some of the earliest longitudinal research on the Tea Party phenomenon and its relation to religion. Uh, original data was gathered in 2006, and then the same people were requeried in 2011. So whereas Tea Party rhetoric focused on the size of government or debt or taxation, and it claimed no partisan loyalty to any major political party, which is ridiculous. But Putnam, Campbell, Putnam and Campbell demonstrated the self-deception involved uh, in the views of, on the government size or scope or self-deception involved in views of debt that were actually not identifying markers in the data. Two factors stood out more than anything else in that 2006, in 2006 that would predict Tea Party affiliation five years later. The strongest predictor was simply prior affiliation with the Republican Party, <laughs> which laid to rest any claim of independence uh, to political party. The biggest indicator of being a Tea Party person was whether or not you were a Republican. The second predictor was a desire for theocracy, which is, you know, fucked. Respondents, theori uh, respondents had theocratic tendencies, and those theocratic tendencies were gauged via three basic questions. Questions of whether our laws and policies would be better if we had more deeply religious elected officials, whether it was appropriate for religious leaders, second, whether it was important for religious leaders to engage in political persuasion from the pulpit, third, whether religion should be brought into public debates over political issues. Anti-black, anti-choice, and anti-immigrant views were all in the mix of identifiers for Tea Party affiliation as well. As the movement uh, ebbed, and its animus leader flowed into Trumpism, uh, we saw how theocracy and libertarian rhetoric actually covered for a type of white nationalism. It was uh, like the, the front. Uh, we saw how theocracy and uh, libertarian rhetoric covered for a type of white nationalism that was brewing in the seedy underbelly of the American corporate structure. So notice that the white evangelical hardly even seems to care about libertarian rhetoric these days. Um, because the desire that it was covering for is much more in the open now. So when considering the state of the United States in the Western world, I, I think of this classic question posed by Baruch Spinoza and Wilhelm Reich, and then repeated by Gilles Deleuze and Felix Guattari. The quote goes, quote, the fundamental problem of political philosophy is still, why do men fight for their servitude as stubbornly as though it were their salvation? How can people possibly reach the point of shouting, more taxes, less bread, after centuries of exploitation. Why do people still tolerate being humiliated and enslaved to such a point? Indeed, that they actually want humiliation and slavery, not only for others, but for themselves. Today, how do liberals desire nothing more than incremental reforms? while leaving oppressive vectors of late capitalism untouched. This is wild to me, how we can oscillate between conservative, liberal, conservative, liberal, Republican, Democrat, and all we ever get is incremental reforms, while the most oppressive uh, forces in our, in our uh, governmental system remain untouched and uninhibited. How does the conservative pauper 
uh, or impoverished individual wish to lower taxes on the wealthy while depriving themselves of living wages or health care? More precisely, how does one enjoy not only cruelty against others, but the suffering of the self as well? Where does the jouissance of, uh, of sadism and masochism incurred when society is burned down come from? The populist's ideology ide uh, exemplifies Marx's definition of ideology, which is, they don't know it, but nevertheless, they are doing it. But populism also expresses the more recent reverse of that famous formula, which is they know very well what they're doing and nevertheless they are still doing it. For political theorist Ernesto Laclau, what matters in populism is the coalition around uh, uh, an empty signifier, the coalition around an empty signifier, the people or real Americans, or patriots, or proud boys, that's the empty signifier, which then draws into orbit various floating signifiers, such as law and order, that's a thing that proud boys like, or all lives matter, or pro-life. So an empty signifier such as the people can mean anything. It's a blanket term that you invoke, hoping that people will jump on board with your program uns uncritically. And this is the first rallying point of a populist movement, is to name it something that attracts people that, uh, with that very vague name, right? The real American or the people, the patriots, and so on. So unlike the empty signifier, which can mean anything, the floating signifier means something very specific, though it never, it's never what it actually says it is. For, for the white supremacists, for example, the call for civility is a key floating signifier, it's meant to dismiss authentic grief and justify aggression. Or consider how for the white evangelical, biblical is a floating signifier. It's not meant to indicate belief in the Bible or some sort of a clearly superior hermeneutic or interpretation that can be communicated. But instead, it's meant to dismiss alternative viewpoints. When you call yourself biblical, you're saying that everything that sees the world differently than you is not right. It's the implication. It's meant to dismiss alternative viewpoints and underwrite that fucking narcissism. So each of these uh, floating signifiers delivers multiple coded messages at once. Populist rhetoric does not have to be foolish or stupid, but it is always disingenuous. This aggressively populist logical drive, uh, it drives sadistic and masochistic tendencies. It's not merely misinformed. It enjoys the misinformation. We need to get better at recognizing counterintuitive locations of enjoyment within populist reason. The, the, uh, the Unite the Right rally should have uh, been a turning point, but instead it showed us just how much farther we could sink as a society. After a statue of the Confederate General Robert E. Lee was slated for removal, white supremacists gathered across the United States, and people still don't believe that they exist which is wild because they were public. They went out there. They bore down on Charlottesville, North Carolina with Confederate flags and Nazi flags and chanted, white lives matter and you will not replace us. As the night went on, the slogan mutated into Jews will not replace us. And honestly, the cartoonish nature of grown men expressing anger while wielding tiki torches um, was funny for a time and ridiculous and stupid. But it turned quickly to horror, as here's a trigger warning, as they marched near a church holding an interfaith prayer gathering. There were no casualties that night. The next day was different, though. Early Saturday afternoon, a white supremacist drove his car through a crowd packed full of anti-racist demonstrators. Nineteen were injured, and a woman was killed and suffered fatal injuries. 
Unwilling to judge barbaric violence or bigotry, the president equivocated, famously saying, and you had some very bad people in that group, and you had also people that were very fine people on both sides. Remember again that the white evangelical makes up the most powerful and steadfast voting voting block behind Trumpism. The Trump... Uh, the Trump could win because the white evangelical voting bloc was so easily manipulated. But after the Unite the Right rally, too many in the media did what they always do with white evangelicals and Trump. Namely, this is, I mean, I hear this amongst my friends. Namely, they ask why evangelicals don't see the contradiction between Jesus and Nazis. Why do they not see the hypocrisy? And this is the criticism that we have to reject because we have been in this for nine episodes at this point. And the point is, white evangelicals have always wanted hierarchy, nationalism, racism, and contempt for outsiders. It is us who have not wanted to believe what white evangelicalism has always wanted. And we need to open our eyes and see the counterintuitive positions that are being staked by this religion, this religious position that we have been steeped in and grown to love, ironically. All theology is political. Just as all politics is theological, as famous, uh, famously described by German Karl Schmitt, who himself had some shameful relationships to fascism. He said, all significant concepts of the modern theory of state are secularized theological concepts. So just as God was sovereign, so too the nation state became sovereign. Just as God declared the exception to natural law via the miracle, so too the executive declares exception via the executive order. Just as baptism marked inclusion, so too social security cards delineate who is saved by citizenship or else damned by non-citizenship. The only thing unavailable today for us is repentance. And that's what Walter Benjamin said when he uh, described capitalism as the first case of a blaming cult rather than a repenting cult. A theology inevitably underwriting and justifying a political zone, which is precisely why it is so dangerous. It cannot forget itself or the other. So as we draw the study of white evangelicalism to uh, a conclusion, it's equally important to analyze the white nationalism always lurking underneath it, underneath white evangelicalism, and now beginning to express itself more openly than it has in generations, as we've seen in uh, the Capitol riots. It's a threat which won't pass with a term limit on one administration or the election of another. It is not something that is going to go away if we just watch and wait. I said it will not moderate. This is a, it's a crude symptom of a desire which was for too long allowed to cover itself with theological dogma and family values or positions on lowering taxes. For decades, it felt incensed if you didn't respect the pious and self-righteous rhetoric that it is now so quickly and eagerly abandoning at the first chance of an ethno-state conservative, uh, ethno-state. Conservative Christianity was dismissed uh, as a fool's faith rather than as a declaration of intent for domination, and that was our fucking mistake. And we face a reckoning now, and we must rediscover the lessons of the 20th century critical theorists if we desire to understand the 21st century, and God hope we survive into the 22nd. You could put it this way. How did the white evangelical respond in the summer of 2018 when we learned of camps for children at the border? Uh, you can do some research on that for yourself. Um, but... Damn, that's episode nine. We have uh, 
uh, a, a relationship to an evangelical church that is at a crossroads of contradiction. It wants to be good citizens at the same time desiring fascism. It wants uh, to be saved and then to equally damn others. It wants to wage culture war, meanwhile undermining culture at every turn. It wants to be a church where everyone is welcome, meanwhile being gatekeepers of people who can be called people of God. It's a wild time, y'all. And if, you, if we don't face the evangelical church's uh, mission statement from day one, then I do not know. I do not know uh, how our churches will survive in the twenty the rest of the 21st century. That sounds fucking bleak. Uh, it's the early morning espresso martini. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, I have my cat here, actually. I don't know if you can hear, but she was snoring the entire time. Uh, and... Uh, but Chet Hanks said it's white boy summer and we won't be letting uh, white boys wear plaid or salmon colored things or vineyard vines and Sperry top ciders. Um, if we can take a stand against white boys wearing those things, I believe we have, I believe we have what it takes to face the gaping maw of evangelical Christianity um, with some fucking spirit. So let's just do it y'all. If you have beef with me right now, um, give me some time. I'm, I'm emotionally fragile. But if you want to talk about this, you can, you can come at me with beef. We'll figure it out. Uh, message at ScubalaCast. Or is it? No, at Scubla posting on Instagram. Um, you can donate booze for the BoozlaCast. Uh, we didn't. I tried to record one BoozlaCast episode, and damn, that was a hard thing to edit. I could only get the, like, a preview. I have no idea. I'll just upload the BoozlaCast that I recorded with Toby, actually, and I won't edit it because that fucking makes no sense. But uh, if you donate booze, we can do more BoozlaCast and with more structure. Um, anyway, I won't take any more of your time. Thanks for listening. Burn Babylon down. Yeah.